So back in Romans chapter 8, and we've been making our way through this uh, section that is typically referred to as the golden chain of redemption, uh, starting with those whom he foreknew, ultimately resulting in those whom he ultimately glorified. And so, um, if you, by the way, if you watched our, uh, uh, our uh, service on Sunday morning this last weekend, We've been in uh, Ephesians as well. We were in Ephesians chapter 1. We looked at verses 4 through 6, where Paul is in similar territory uh, in that cha- uh, passage as well. And so we touched on some of this in that message, but we're going to go a little bit uh, further on it today and talk about some of these terms in the chain itself. Uh, so uh, Romans chapter 8, let's go ahead and start in verse 28 and go through verse uh, 30. Okay, and that just, again, gives us our context here. So... Bible ready to go? Here we go. And we know, I love that, we know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so again, we have the assurance of both the immediate sense of God working things together in our lives, but ultimately that's within the larger picture of him working all things together for our good in a more ultimate sense. And that's where the rest of this passage ultimately um, comes to, uh, comes to bear on this. And so we're going to see here again, this golden chain of redemption that provides the foundation upon which we can understand that all things in our life's context ultimately are working by God's hand for our good. And the good ultimately will result in our glorification. And so these things that happen in our lives are not random. Uh, they are not accidental. I like saying that God doesn't waste any time in our lives, but he uses every moment ultimately to work things together for good for those who are the called. Now, we understand that as his children, these this promise is for us, and it is a promise. We can stand on it. We can uh, ultimately see our lives through this lens and know that nothing that God does in our lives, whether seemingly good or seemingly bad, uh, is wasted or is misplaced, misdirected, misapplied. It is used to ultimately produce a an ultimate good. I'm using that word ultimate a lot because I'm just helping us, wanting to help us understand that there is a big picture in mind here. So that being that, uh, that being said, again, in verse uh, 28, it goes on to say um, that, or in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The idea here that um, that we are ultimately being, as it says, conformed into the image of Christ, who is the progenitor of us as believers. He's the one who tra- blazes the trail uh, in which we follow and walk. And so we are what we are because he is who he is and what he did and what he accomplished on our behalf. And so um, now, again, if you watched on Sunday, we talked a little bit about a couple of these terms, but let me come back over them again. I want to assume you watched our Sunday service. So Verse 29 again, um, for whom he foreknew, the idea of foreknowledge. Let me uh, kind of start here by saying that um, some of these concepts are generally, uh, in the in the hearts of many, these terms and concepts create a measure of discomfort, to say the least. 
some are viscerally affected by this. Some are very, very put off by some of the concepts that Paul talks about here and will continue to talk about in chapters 9 through 11. And not only here in, in Romans, but we see this again in Ephesians. We see this in um, in some of Jesus' own teachings. Um, we see this in um, you know, in, in, uh, in various places really throughout the New Testament and the concept of his foreknowledge, his election, these different ideas that come up in this conversation really permeate scripture. And so there, there's really no getting around this subject. And so I, I want to make sure that as we touch on this, as we move into it, uh, that we don't fear it, but rather we just seek to try and understand as much of it as we can. Now that's a, um, uh, I put it that way because this is a discussion that has been going on for virtually all of the history of the Christian church. Um, early, early Christian writers discuss things like God's sovereignty and, and that kind of thing. Uh, around 500 years ago, there was discussions from uh, a thinker named Arminius who came up uh, with uh, essentially his own perspective on some of these probing questions about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And his thinking and writing and, and his ideas, uh, essentially become sort of the, the, the main, you know, points of Arminianism. And in response to this, uh, the five points of Calvinism are produced that ultimately are, are, are given in response to those views. And so that's just a, a super thumbnail tiny bit of information about some of the history of this. But all of that to say that this discussion has been going on for a long time, and I would say longer than 500 years back to the Reformation, some of these concepts uh, have been part of Christian discussion and thinking for a very, very long time. And so when I say know as much as we can about it, uh, one thing I can promise you is that you will not figure it all out any more than the church has in the past 2,000 years. But to understand it as best as we can can still be meaningful enough to cause us to recognize the lofty nature of the mind of God, uh, at, at the very least in regard to this subject, but certainly uh, overall. And it causes us to worship as we consider the majesty of God, the, again, the loftiness of his thoughts. In Isaiah 55, he speaks of how his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so uh, it should not surprise us that we will occasionally come across a subject that we cannot fully get our minds around. And this is, if there are any subjects like that in all of Scripture, this is probably uh, maybe next to the nature of the Trinity or the mechanics of the Trinity, the triune nature of God being three distinct persons within one being in the, the monotheistic, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> the monotheistic uh, perspective of the Christian faith. Maybe next to that or behind that would be this one. But that's that's how big of a thing this actually is and how hard this is to really understand. Again, we don't really fully understand it. But that being said, we look at the passages, and I guess one last thought on that, and this is what we talked about on Sunday a bit when we came to this, and even a few years ago when we were in John's Gospel looking at this subject as well. Um, we don't want to make the mistake of watering down anything that the Scripture says. Um, I am of the belief, again, this is probably a huge spoiler at the, at the outset, I, I am not part of the Reformed camp. And so when I talk about these things, you may start to think that I am because I'm not toning down any of what Paul says about this subject in regard to God's sovereign election. Um, but I do hold the view 
that there is both God's sovereign election, but also man's legitimate responsibility to respond uh, to the gospel and, and to the knowledge that God gives in regard to his nature and his purposes and plans. There is a legitimate expectation uh, that man would respond either negatively or positively to that. And I think that is truly on the shoulders of man to respond that way, uh, to exercise faith and that kind of thing, which in itself is a big discussion about the nature of faith and where it comes from. And is it a gift from God or is it something that is just within us that, that God has, you know, pretty much put in anyone to be able to respond or not? That's a, another big part of this discussion. But let me touch on this. When we, when we talk about whom he foreknew, there are two main uh, views on the idea of foreknowledge. One is what probably is held by most people in regard to this. I'm not saying that makes it the right view necessarily, but it is the one that is held by most people. And that's the idea that God looked down through the corridor of, of, of history of, of time, saw those who would respond to the gospel favorably, and then went on and predestined and called and justified and glorified and that kind of thing uh, as the chain goes. That's one definition of foreknowledge. And the term foreknowledge, which tends to speak of the idea of being foreordained and that kind of thing, uh, is held by some Greek scholars to mean that very thing that we just talked about, the idea of God seeing down uh, the quarter of time and choosing, therefore, those uh, uh, who ultimately would, would believe, who we saw would believe. Um, the other view is that foreknowledge speaks, again, of foreordaining, the idea that God chose those who ultimately uh, would then believe and, and be saved. Now, this uh, uh, is clearly the Reformed view, but I would argue that Scripture clearly makes two cases. Um, I'll say in my opinion, but I, I don't think it's just my opinion. I think the Scripture bears it out, and I want to spend a minute on this. Um, this idea that God chooses completely of his own volition, without any contribution on man's part or playing any part in this, but God sovereignly or completely of his own uh, free choice to do whatever he chooses, he chooses people in history, uh, in time and space in the world and, and throughout human history who would ultimately believe. Uh, and this is... Uh, this is the view of foreknowledge that uh, the reformers would take and Calvin would take and this kind of thing. So uh, many of the reformers, at least, if, if not all of them, probably all of them, actually. But um, but anyway, so this is the the what is generally held to be the correct view of foreknowledge. Now, there are passages, of course, that demonstrate this. Um, matter of fact, in, in Romans chapter nine, if you want to just uh, look over to your right or maybe flip a page, as, as it were, um, uh, in verse 11, as, as, as Paul is talking about, uh, Jacob and Esau, verse 11, for the children, Jacob and Esau, that is not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said of her, the older shall serve the younger, and it is written, Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated. The main principle there being that election is ultimately the means through which people come to faith or don't. And so, um, um, that is a perspective that Scripture does say right there. Now, again, I told you a moment ago, I'm not going to water down what the Scripture says. Here's one among many. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there real quick. Again, we were just there this weekend, and we were looking at verses 4 through 6, and notice what Paul says. Um, uh, and, and he speaks, I guess I should interject at this point, by the way, that uh, I'm going to read verse 3 uh, and 4. But much like in Romans, 
where the, uh, if much like in Romans, uh, um, uh, eight, nine, 10, and 11, the discussion here in Ephesians one is not one of scaring people and terrifying them. It is actually one of bringing security. In Romans, we'll see as we get through chapter 8 all the way to the end, verses 38 and 39, we'll see that there's this grand uh, elevated statement of how uh, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, the reason for that is everything that preceded it, that God is responsible for our salvation, therefore nothing will will separate us from his love and this kind of thing. Well, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is intended, again, not to terrify anybody. It's intended to encourage. Notice again what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Uh, we are holy and blameless before him, because he chose us to be. This is what the idea of uh, of being justified is all about, part of the golden chain we saw there in, in, in Romans 8. So there are passages here that very clearly express the reality that God chooses. Now, the other thing that I believe that Scripture holds uh, uh, very clearly or portrays very clearly is the idea that man is also legitimately undermine legit under not undermine underline legitimately responsible to either respond or not respond to the gospel when it comes. This is why Paul calls out, "Be reconciled to God." To those who are not, and this kind of thing. And if you uh, Second Corinthians five, um, if you want to turn back to Romans, uh, in Romans chapter one, let me start by looking at verse eighteen here where it speaks of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so there is this idea that God had, or uh, in verse 19, because what may be known of God is made known to them, for God has shown it to them. And he goes on to describe how his invisible attributes and the general revelation of, of who he is and his existence and this kind of thing has been given to them. Nonetheless, man who has been given this, uh, unregenerate man in particular, presses down, holds these things down, uh, and ultimately rejects them or turns from them, holds them down, tries to suppress them, and this kind of thing. And so we see this concept run through the rest of chapter 1 of Romans, which I'm always fond of saying, if you want to get into Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, you first have to go through Romans 1. And I think this is an important point to consider in this idea of both the sovereignty of God, but also the responsibility of man. I hesitate to use the word free will because it is a, it, that, that term in itself sometimes can be a bit of a misnomer. We do sense a freedom to choose things in our lives. However, we don't have total free will, do we? Uh, I was having this conversation with a good friend yesterday, and uh, we might decide that we want to breathe in outer space. However, we will die. And so we have free will to choose that, but we don't really have free will to do whatever we want. We can't just breathe in outer space. I can't just jump off my roof and fly. I, I don't have free will in that sense. There are some restrictions upon my actual freedom. Uh, and so we should just, that just begins the thinking process of some of these concepts. So I, uh, and plus it's worth noting that the concept of free will is one that is actually in secular circles being hotly debated as well. Are we determined or are we free really? 
And so some of the, like the example I just gave about, you know, breathing in outer space, that would fit into that discussion. That's a whole other thing. So I, in an effort to sort of set that discussion aside, I like to use the word responsibility uh, more than free will, because I think responsibility more specifically gets to, uh, and it encapsulates a part of free will, but it more specifically touches on what we're talking about here. God's sovereign election, but man's responsibility to respond. There is a legitimate expectation from Romans 1 that as this knowledge is given, that man will respond in the affirmative and not in the negative. In other words, he he should believe based on what God has made known. However, he does not. Rather, instead, what he does is he suppresses. Now, there is an example within Reformed theology or Calvinism. I know sometimes... Um, We'll use those terms interchangeably, understandably. Um, there is uh, an example given when it comes to the uh, uh, the one of the, the the first point, the idea of total depravity, uh, the first point of Calvinism, the the TULIP uh, acronym. If you um, uh, are familiar with that, but total depravity speaks of a person's complete inability, because he is dead in sin, complete inability to respond to the gospel. Therefore, he must be revived and faith must be given to him, um, generally taken from a, 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 um, a particular view of how Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 should be interpreted. The idea that um, we are saved by grace through faith, that not of our works, it is the gift of God, not of, uh, not, or it, um, uh, uh, we're saved by grace through faith, uh, and that uh, not of work. Oh. Hello, Sam Callis Romans in my head here right now. You think I'd be able to recite this? Um, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Um, typically, in the Reformed camp, the idea is that the that that is spoken of in in uh, verse eight is faith. Faith is not of yourself; it is given to you by God, and therefore you can now believe and be saved. And this is part of the the the, the understanding of how that unfolds. I don't hold that view of, of that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. I don't think that faith is necessarily the specific idea in, in view there as much as the overall of being saved in general. But there are differing views and scholars differ on that. But that's where that perspective comes from. Um, but the idea here of, um, of, of someone being so dead in their sin that they cannot respond to the gospel unless they be revived I think has to come to bear in our understanding of Romans chapter one, where it says that they suppress the truth. If someone is too dead to believe, how can they be alive enough to suppress? I, I think the the illustration I think has some issues with it. Uh, the thinking may not um, is more is is in fairness much more comprehensive than that. But the idea here of somebody being too dead to respond, I think maybe that illustration doesn't serve the purpose that oftentimes it's raised uh, to give, and so. When it comes to the the idea of somebody being expected to, uh, given that light, the responsibility now on them is a legitimate one where they can either receive or not receive. Uh, this again is one uh, a point of of uh, a hinging point between Reformed and non-Reformed theology on these points. Another passage or passages uh, that come to bear on this, if you want to turn to the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter five. Verses 39 and 40, John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. 
but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Clearly, the, the, the point of this, searching the scriptures, as Jesus is talking about it, is that they might see that he is the focal point of all of scripture for the intention that they would believe, excuse me, believe in him and have life, but they're not willing. Okay, that is an act of volition. That is something that a person has a responsibility to respond uh, meaningfully, rightly, affirmatively to, and that kind of thing. But Jesus says they're not willing to. Uh, so this now speaks to the idea that the expectation is, is that man should be responding correctly to this knowledge and this, this, uh, uh, this light that is given. However, they're not. They're choosing not to. They're unwilling to. Now, in chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus speaks to the other side of the coin, uh, where he talks in verse 44, he says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, they can't come unless the father draws them. So we see Jesus within a chapter or so, I mean, in, in these two different discussions uh, recorded in close proximity in John, um, there is both the idea of man's responsibility to respond but also the fact that they can't without God's uh, making, you know, uh, without God's uh, drawing them. And so we do see this tension between these concepts uh, in the scripture. And these are just a couple of examples. You can, you can obviously do uh, uh, look into this more, but just to give some basic ideas here of this concept of man's responsibility and, um, and the, the sovereignty of God. So, I am of the belief that both of these ideas run through Scripture, and while they are irreconcilable from our perspective, I don't believe they're irreconcilable from God's perspective. Somewhere in the infinity of God, he understands how these are, not just understands, but designed how these things would work. And so um, so when we talk about these things, like in Romans chapter 8, or in Ephesians chapter 1, or anywhere else we see it in Scripture... Um, I think it is important to recognize the validity of these two perspectives that coexist together, even though they run side by side and don't seem to intersect on this side of the threshold. I think that's a vital thing in understanding this idea, or at least understanding it as best as we can. And I think it also allows us to let the scripture speak for itself and not embrace one at the expense of the other. Now, that's just my perspective. I have very good friends who are in the Reformed camp who will agree or disagree to some varying point on that. Um, I think even uh, many uh, modern-day, well-known uh, teachers who are Reformed, people like John MacArthur and such, would would say at some point there are some questions here that, that are just beyond our finding out. Some brilliant thinking has been done on this, um, but, at this uh, but, but ultimately, uh, even though there are some that would claim to really have this nailed down, I, 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 in reading and listening and trying to make sure I'm getting a fair understanding of their perspectives, I just don't get there personally. So, um, this may be a point that you take me to task in the comments or something like that, but just, um, just, uh, in, in an effort to kind of begin to move forward in this passage, I just want to kind of lay those things out as, uh, at least something for you to consider. So, uh, again, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, the idea of predestination is, uh, in this term, predestined, is used six times in the New Testament, and most of them are directly connected with the idea of what God does in or to or through, you know, or in or to uh, those whom he ultimately calls. And so this uh, speaks 
both kind of to the choosing, but really choosing for the purpose of accomplishing a purpose. Uh, and that then is naturally followed by the idea of being called. But here, the explanation in verse 29 is that they're predestined, or we are predestined as believers, to ultimately be conformed into the image of his Son. So this is uh, both a positional and practical truth that happens in the life of a believer. Paul would elsewhere put it this way in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, where he speaks about how if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And all these things are of God, as he would go on to say. And so um, this this idea of being predestined touches on the idea of being chosen, but more toward the idea of being chosen for a purpose. And here the purpose is spelled out for us to be conformed into the image of his son, that again, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now it goes on in verse 30. Uh, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also naturally, I'll put in parentheses, naturally he called. In other words, he chose, and he chose for a purpose, and then the next natural step is that he would then call that person, uh, ultimately to be saved. And so the invitation now comes, and the acceptance happens. The idea of the calling speaks of both, you know, in, in terms of this chain, it speaks of both the calling and the, the, the wooing of the Holy Spirit and all this kind of thing. Now, nobody would really argue with the idea that the Holy Spirit calls somebody and woos somebody and ultimately draws people uh, to, to the Lord. And so it is the work of God, again, who that is central in this process. At this point, I'll also point out that when we talk about the grace of God, we always, I shouldn't say everybody does, but the Bible teaches that God's grace um, uh, is, is all of him. We don't earn it. We don't do anything to, to get it or to keep it. It is something that is freely given to us by God. We are justified outside of anything that we do. It is God's grace that ultimately saves us, and we don't earn any of it. Now, this I mentioned the idea of faith in Ephesians chapter 2 before. Um, this is, if not the biggest hinging point, it certainly is one of the major hinging points between uh, different perspectives on how we understand this concept uh, and how we maybe come to understand these two ideas of sovereignty and God's sovereignty and man's responsibility running side by side here. The idea of, is faith a work? Is faith something that... Um, or maybe the argument better goes like this. Um, if if we are saved by responding to the gospel and we bring faith, apart from it being a gift from God, then we are contributing in some way to our salvation. Therefore, faith must be a gift from God if his grace is going to be completely of God. Uh, and that might... I think that closely hits it in fairness. I'm trying to be as fair as I can to any perspective on this. I never try to misre- I try to make sure I don't misrepresent. Um, but the idea of God's grace being from him, therefore would require, I, I would suppose, that faith be considered a gift from God. Otherwise, if it's of us, we are now somehow contributing to our salvation. Uh, this is where terms like monergism and synergism come to play. Uh, monergism being all of God, completely devoid of any contribution from man. Uh, synergism being cooperating with, working in concert with God toward our salvation. Um, and the reason I would say 
that our exercising faith in response to the gospel is not considered a work is because simply Paul himself says that faith is not a work. Places like Romans 4, 5, where it says that he who believes but does not have works is still justified. Um, Blessed is the one to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Well, we receive it by faith, but faith is not seen as a work, according to Paul. And so for us to exercise faith, it would seem to me, is not cooperating with God for our salvation, so much as simply responding to that which God has thrown out to us. Um, You wouldn't really argue that somebody who's drowning and gets a life preserver put around them and they get carried up uh, is responding to it. They want to be saved from their predicament. The life jacket was thrown to them and they gladly embrace it. But it is if the life jacket had not been thrown to them, they would have had nothing to embrace. And so it really is of God. And so, um, and that analogy, of course, breaks down at some point, but it's, you know, um, um, it's just a, you know, hey, if, if, if reforming guys can use the dead guy analogy, I'll use the life jacket analogy. So anyway, so, but, but that's kind of trying to make the point of this. And so, um, I don't think that faith is seen as something that is a work. And so I don't know that it necessarily would follow that, that, that if we exercise faith apart from it being a gift, that we somehow frustrate the grace of God or we can, not frustrate, but contribute to the grace of God and that kind of thing. So let me go ahead and jump back into the passage. Um, who he predestined, these he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. Now, again, this passage is given to us to bring assurance. That which, uh, you know, like Paul says in uh, Philippians 1.6, the idea that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. This is an explanation of this um, link by link explaining that concept. And so if we are uh, foreknown by God, we are predestined by him and called by him, we naturally then will be justified by him. He called us and he will accomplish that work. We are justified. Uh, uh, again, Second Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, we have been justified uh, ultimately um, by the Lord, not by our works, not by our efforts, not even by our desire. It is completely of him that we are justified. And then, of course, those whom he justified, these he also glorified. The final link in that chain, glorification. Now, there is a positional sense in which we are sons of God, we stand to inherit, we are justified in his sight, but there is a day coming when we will ultimately be in heaven with God, uh, new heavens, new earth, we will be able to be in the presence of God in our glorified bodies, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians five uh, fifteen verses 50 to 58, uh, we see this concept of our being made new, not just positionally, but physically, practically. Uh, for this, for the sake of being in the presence of God, uh, in whom no sin can um, abide, and 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 this kind of thing, we we need to be fitted for that kind of thing, essentially. And so, so there you go. That that begins to speak to this idea of the golden chain of redemption, and um, we will continue to talk about this concept of the sovereignty of God at work um, in. Um, uh, in expression through chapters 9 through 11. Now, you'll notice as we continue to make our th- way through chapter 8, we'll continue to accentuate the fact that God has done this, that we might ultimately stand in the confidence that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is in him and by him, as, as Paul said in Ephesians 1, that we ultimately have our right standing. It is his doing we are simply the recipients of this kind of thing. So uh, of this, of this salvation that he has given to us, I shouldn't say this kind of thing, this, the specifically the salvation that he has afforded us through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. 
So there you go. Now we've gotten a little further. Um, and of course, much more could be said about these terms. Uh, you can go in and find resources all over the place, certainly online, when it comes to understanding uh, Arminius's perspective and Calvin's perspective. Uh, it is easy to, under, to find information to under, help understand the Reformed and non-Reformed positions. Um, and let me also say here in closing that, um, you know, I'm, I, as we talk about different perspectives on how these things work and the mechanics of this process of coming, you know, to salvation and, and the responsibility and, and the sovereignty in these issues that, that we've been talking about, um, we ought not, if I can really try and make a very strong statement, we ought not divide over our understandings of these things. This should not separate us. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we may hold different perspectives on the how this ultimately works. Uh, both, both camps we've referred to today, uh, do believe in the finished work of Christ. We believe that we are saved by grace, uh, by faith, you know, and, and such. There's, there's this commonality that we have in our ultimate foundational beliefs makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, the question of the mechanics of how the system works, how it is that we ultimately, uh, how it is that God has worked this out in us, um, that is something that, again, has been debated, discussed throughout the centuries. Certainly, we can learn to coexist as brothers and sisters and have these discussions without separating over them. Having said that, I do also believe that this is an important enough topic that um, that if you are so inclined, not everybody will want to get their try and get their minds around some of these ideas. But I do think it is uh, it is an, a subject that is worthy of rigorous study and rigorous seeking to understand. Um, reading people that hold these different perspectives, so that we might understand and even learn from some of the ideas that are raised uh, throughout these uh, as these discussions are unfolding. In that, I think it's good for us as believers to look into these ideas. Uh, because it elevates our understanding, it prods us to think more deeply, it may offer insights that we hadn't considered before, certainly if nothing else, to consider the mind of God on a subject like this. Again, much like the exploration of, of, of the triune nature of God, these are things that elevate our sense of wonder about God. And so therefore, they are valuable concepts and ideas for us to delve into and, and to consider. Not only that, but they're in Scripture. And so if we're going to study the Scripture, uh, we believe that the Word of God is the Word of God, then we ought not just sort of move past these things and not try to understand them. Um, I just think it's a worthwhile pursuit. And certainly uh, brothers and sisters can discuss these things in, in genuine Christian fellowship and agree to disagree. If we can't come to a, an agreement, you can just come to an impasse and still love each other and that kind of thing. I've experienced that, thankfully, in my own life with my closest friends. And it's just been a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to have these discussions without fear of, of, uh, of, of losing fellowship over it. I think that's not only possible. I think it's something that we should, um, desire to have deep conversations. There was a great, um, uh, meme that somebody posted. It was a picture of a guy sitting alone on a park bench, kind of despondent. And it said, me, when I go to a party and nobody wants to talk about theology. Well, hey man, my, my buddy and I were talking about this. It's like, hey, at our parties, we talk theology. That's, I just think that's a great thing for believers to spend time on. And this is one of those topics that is a great one to spend time on. So enough said about that. We'll continue on our study in Romans in the days ahead, but thank you for watching and listening. If you'd like to, uh, uh, share a comment or ask a question or something, you can do that, uh, in the comment section on our YouTube channel. 
You can also, if you're listening to the audio podcast, you can go to my personal website at uh, parsonspad.com and you can, uh, you can comment there as well. You can also go to our church's website and watch these videos at calvarychapelfranklin.com and you can email me from there at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. So thanks again for watching and listening. Glad to be able to spend some time going through the Word of God together and, uh, and looking forward to the next time. Father, we thank you for these things that you've given us to consider in your Word. It, subjects like this remind us of what you said in Isaiah when you said that our thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways, or your thoughts are not our thoughts, Lord. You are so far above and so far loftier than we uh, could ever expect to be, both in time and eternity. But nonetheless, you've given us these things to seek to understand and to delve into, that we might find ourselves all the more in awe of your grandness and greatness. So we thank you, Father, that even though we don't understand exactly how all this ultimately works, um, we do thank you that you have shared it with us that we might consider it. So, Father, help us in uh, in love and in desire to maintain fellowship, to be open to having these discussions with one another, and help us personally as students of your word to be willing to think hard about some of these things that require us to think hard, uh, to not be satisfied to blow by passages of Scripture, but rather to dive in and seek to understand them as best we can. Father, we do thank you. We love you and praise you for just giving us this glorious gift of your word. And we thank you that at the end of it all, because Jesus has paid for our sins and we are free now uh, as believers in Christ to live our lives without fear of ever being separated from your love, uh, to know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Father, we thank you that we are new creations in Christ. And there is therefore now laid up in heaven for us uh, a wonderful, wonderful inheritance that is kept there for us who are kept by the power of God. How we bless you and praise you for all that is yet to come. And we thank you again for what we have now to study and to learn and to grow thereby. So praise you and bless you for these things, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.